You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Twelve Rites of Passage by Paula Graves, also known as Anne Haynes. Chapter 10, Reconstruction. Shakespeare's Pub, Washington, D.C., February 17, 1998, 6.48 a.m. The coffee at Shakespeare's Pub was hot and strong, the way Walter Skinner liked it. The waitress knew him by sight and brought a steaming mug to his table without having to be told. She was a pretty woman, tall and leggy, with straight sandy blonde hair and beautiful green eyes. In her mid-twenties, he guessed, a student, judging from the stack of books he usually saw behind the counter when he went to pay. Her name tag said, Juliet. He was curious about the three T's, but didn't want to pry. Intrusiveness was his job, and he tended to leave it behind when he wasn't on the clock. Juliet pulled an order pad from the pocket of her green apron. What'll be this morning, sir, bagel or Danish? Feeling daring, he ordered the Danish and settled back to read the morning newspaper. He was barely through the editorial section, dishearteningly full of anti-Matheson rhetoric, when the approach of footsteps interrupted his reading. He looked up into the face of a nondescript man in a dark suit and conservative tie. Skinner pegged him immediately as Secret Service. He folded his newspaper and lay in front of him. Yes? The man gave a little nod toward the door. We're going to the White House, Mr. Skinner. J. Edgar Hoover Building, 7 a.m. Mulder wanted to talk. Scully could tell by the way he continued to shift restlessly in his seat as he perused the printouts Pendrell had provided the day before. She should probably just put him out of his misery, let him speak his mind, tell her that she was abducted by little green men, probed, prodded, and eventually robbed of her memory. She knew that was what he still believed, despite her protestations to the contrary. The fact that even her hypnosis-aided confabulations didn't bear out any such conclusion was of no consequence to Mulder. He had always been one to come up with a theory first and then seek the evidence to support it. Such a backward way of doing things, really. Very unscientific. Very Mulder. She glanced across the room at him, wondering why she'd ever become so attached to him in the first place. He was gloomy, acerbic, stubborn, and quite often childish. He had no patience for the kind of painstaking detective work that solved most mysteries. He bridled under her slower, careful approach to their cases, chafed at her insistence that a theory is worthless without some sort of evidence to back it up. He sulked when she turned out to be right. She should have gotten the hell out of this basement a long time ago. She was at a loss to explain why she had not. Unless, maybe, it was the way his passions enveloped her, swept her up in the whirlwind, gave her life color and music and fragrance, the way he listened to her, even when he disagreed, because he respected her mind and her opinions, the way he made her laugh against her better judgment and will, the way he trusted only her, the way his beard stubble had rasped against the bare skin of her abdomen, the way his breath had stirred the fine hairs of her belly and sent shudders of need below. 
God, that had been an effort, resisting the urge to curl her fingers in his hair and urge him lower. I've been thinking about my father's role in all of this. Mulder's voice broke into her thoughts, shivering down her spine like a flutter of kisses. His eyes lifted to meet hers. He had slept very little again last night. After leaving her bedroom, he'd tried to sleep on the couch again. But she'd stayed awake, listening to the soft sounds of his restlessness well into the early morning hours. His face showed the ravages of the past few days. He looked tired and older than his 36 years. Mulder, I don't think I have to know. She fell silent, knowing that he wouldn't be able to have any sort of peace until he'd established the full extent of his father's part in her abduction. Oddly, she felt no such compunction for herself. Even if William Mulder had been instrumental in her kidnapping, it changed nothing in her mind. Her only concern in the matter was how such knowledge would affect Mulder. She'd give almost anything to spare him more pain, and she could imagine few injuries as grievous as losing utter faith in one's father. How are you going to do that? She asked after another moment of silence. It's been so long. Only four years, Scully. A haunted look crossed his face. Sometimes it feels like only yesterday. She blinked back the tears that surprised her. I know. He looked down at the papers in front of him, hiding his eyes from her. I've got a flight to Boston booked for later this afternoon. Boston? I'm going to the vineyard to see if I can establish my father's whereabouts from August to November 1994. I booked two seats. He glanced up at her. She felt a niggle of discomfort considering her own news for him. I'm afraid I've booked a flight for us myself, Mulder, to Charleston. He arched his eyebrow. We've been so busy looking at this case backwards, Mulder, that we haven't even noticed that we've neglected the real point of our search, finding Sarah Chandler. That's what our 302 authorizes. We haven't even talked to her parents, and that should have been one of the first visits on our list. He nodded and reached for the phone. I'll cancel the flight to Boston. No, she shook her head. You need to find out about your father, Mulder. I understand that. I can handle the interview with the Chandlers myself. I don't like the idea of your going there by yourself. She pressed her lips together, feigning annoyance. She wasn't really upset by Mulder's blatant display of overprotectiveness, but she wasn't above using it to her own advantage. Mulder, I'm quite capable of flying to Charleston all by myself. How long do you think you'll be gone? Two days, if that. He nodded. About the same amount of time I'll be in West Tisbury, I expect. This is a good approach, Mulder. We'll attack the ends and meet in the middle. We always do, Scully. His mouth curved slightly as he met her gaze. Yes, she thought, we always do. Oval Office, 7.14 a.m. Fox has booked a flight to Boston. Agent Scully has booked a flight to Charleston. Were you aware of this? President Richard Matheson steepled his hands in front of him, leaning across the massive desk that dominated the Oval Office. Skinner didn't, but he wasn't surprised. Very little about his two most brilliant and difficult agents surprised him this day. They've filed the proper paperwork, haven't they? Yes, Matheson sat back. 
They are quite determined to find this young woman they seek. Agents Mulder and Scully are quite determined about all the cases they pursue. Skinner squirmed inwardly. He didn't like playing politics. He sure as hell didn't like kissing up, even to a man he more or less respected. And he didn't like games. Walter Skinner was not really such a complicated man. In his work, he was forced to deal with the conflicting motivations and goals of those above and below him. But at heart, he was a simple man with simple tenets. His dedication to his work with the FBI was not as cynical or self-serving as his underlings or his superiors might have imagined. Rising in the ranks was a means to an end to Skinner, not the end itself. His ambitions sought power not for himself, but for the ideals he held sacred, fidelity, bravery, integrity. The course his life had taken over the past six years surprised him with its sheer complexity. He'd towed a precarious line between autocracy and anarchy, trying to hold the ripping seams of justice together. Neither his shadowy puppet masters nor his resentful charges understood why he did what he did. But Skinner didn't have the luxury of caring what people thought of him. He did his job the best he knew how and sought to be true to his simple tenets and true to those whose lives he sometimes literally held in his hands. Fox Mulder and Dana Scully were two of those lives and he valued them perhaps above all others. It is a dangerous time for Fox and his partner to be rocking the boat. Matheson commented. Skinner remained silent, waiting for the president to continue. The upcoming congressional elections may well decide the fate of my administration, Mr. Skinner. My supporters are losing ground in the polls. Should a scandal arise, I'm not certain my administration will achieve the goals we set out in the beginning. And I don't like breaking my promises. Why are you telling me this? Skinner simply didn't have the patience to play nice. It was probably imprudent speaking this way to the President of the United States, but he didn't exactly have much to lose these days. I'm telling you this because you have the power to guide them in the way they should go. And what way is that? Their success in this endeavor is imperative. I want full Bureau support behind whatever they choose to do. I've informed Tom Shea of my wishes. This is different, Skinner thought. He hid a slight smile. Usually his orders were quite the opposite. He wondered what Shea had had to say. The FBI director wasn't the biggest fan of the X-Files division. I'll provide whatever resources they require. Good, good. Matheson rose with a dismissive gesture. Glad to hear it. Skinner stood as well, his brow creasing with curiosity. That was it? The president had gone through this cloak and dagger charade merely to inform Skinner that Mulder and Scully were to be allowed to do their job? There had to be more to this meeting. Sir, may I ask why you brought me here? Your wishes could have been conveyed by Director Shea just as easily. Matheson's expression gave away nothing. I simply wanted to meet you, Mr. Skinner. May I call you Walter? Skinner couldn't exactly refuse. Certainly. Walter, I've heard a great deal about your work. I've heard about the difficulties you've experienced since the X-Files project was put under your supervision. Matheson smiled. Fox and Dana both speak quite highly of you. Skinner hid his pleasure, but he was flattered. Knowing his wary young agents as well as he did, 
he realized that their respect was given sparingly. The next few months are crucial to our work, Walter, to the things I believe we all want to accomplish. Matheson walked toward the exit, clearly expecting Skinner to follow. The wrong move could be very costly for all of us. Skinner felt tempted to ask the president to come to the point. Remember, Walter, you have a stake in this as well, a far higher stake than you might assume. Matheson opened the door and gestured for Skinner to leave. That's it? A few cryptic remarks? Some veiled promises? Or were those threats? No, Skinner decided as he followed a Secret Service agent through the corridors of the White House. He didn't like politics at all. The Secret Service agent led him out of the curb near Shakespeare's pub. Skinner glanced at his watch, 7.30 a.m. He wasn't officially due at the office until 8 o'clock, and besides, he supposed a clandestine meeting with the president would be considered on-the-job activity. And he never had gotten to have that Danish. Juliet looked up when he entered, a smile of surprise crossing her pretty face. She crossed to the coffee maker immediately. Mr. Skinner, back for that Danish after all? Can't stay away, Juliet. He sat at the bar instead of his usual table, glancing at the stack of books near the cash register. Elizabethan Literary Subversion was the title of the book on top. English major? Juliet turned to smile at him. Working on my dissertation at Georgetown. He nodded. I got my PhD from Duke. He gestured toward the books. Renaissance literature, my concentration was American poets. She chuckled. Isn't that an oxymoron? She winked. Just kidding. I'm rather fond of Emily Dickinson myself. She poured him a fresh cup of coffee and placed it on the counter next to his cream cheese danish. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. I'm a frost man myself. He smiled at the young woman, wondering what his life would be like if he'd taken that Princeton professorship he'd turned down to enter the FBI. God knew his job at the Bureau was thankless at best, and nowadays he went home to an empty house. He could do that anywhere, performing any job. His only regret would be abandoning Mulder and Scully. Sometimes he thought they were the sole reason he hadn't resigned right after Sharon's death. He realized that he was one of the few defenses the pair had against the forces gathered against them. And Walter Skinner was very good at being a fortress. West Tisbury, Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard, February 17, 1998, 9.48 p.m. West Tisbury was what the locals called Up Island, vineyardese for the less touristy parts of the island that had as much to do with local character as geography. Unlike the crowded, pretty resort towns along the coast, West Tis was a rural place, home to people who valued their privacy. Mulder's father's house was hidden away from the road by tall boxwood hedges that loomed like giants in the darkness. Since his father's death, the house had been leased to non-residents during the season as additional income for his mother. Off-season, the house stood empty, but Mulder had a key. After he went to the main breaker to switch on the power, Mulder turned on as many lights as possible, driving away the inky darkness that covered him like a prickly blanket. 
The house was icy cold and smelled musty, unused. The tourist season ended around Labor Day, and no doubt the house had lain untouched since then. A fine layer of dust covered every surface. Mulder briefly considered finding a cloth and doing a quick once-over, but he decided against it. He was beat. He did wipe off the tan leather couch before he stretched out across it. The living room was three walls of windows. Outside, the night was impenetrable. The windows rattled in their casements from the winter wind. He sank lower into the cushions and stared up at the ceiling, wishing he'd taken a room at a hotel in Edgartown. Any place but this house. He could feel his father, feel the liquor-drenched sweat of cowardice. He smelled the sour odor of fear and deceit. Are you here, Dad? Come out and speak to me. Murder most foul. The shrill burr of his cellular phone jarred him. Scully, of course. Mulder. Hey, it's me. Her voice sounded so far away. She must be in Charleston now. How South Carolina? Remarkably warm for February. Trade ya. Cold up there? Yeah. The house was heated by steam radiators. A soft hissing sound heralded the advent of heat, accompanied by the occasional nerve-wracking clang. Already he was feeling a little less shivery. You sound tired. I am. So do you. I am too. Where are you staying? What hotel? I'm at my dad's place. It stays empty during the off-season. I didn't see a point in checking into a hotel. She was silent for a long moment. I'm okay, Scully. I was just thinking that a hotel might have made it easier for you. I'd planned to give the place a once-over anyway, to see if there are any nooks or crannies that might have been missed when we cleaned the place out after Dad's death. You're not planning to stay up tonight doing that, are you? Her voice took on a stern edge. No, Mom, I'm all settled down for bed. Really? Yep. What are you wearing? Ooh, Scully, he grinned at the phone. I'll tell you if you tell me. She made a sound that might have been a stifled chuckle. Black pajamas and gray sweat socks. Your turn. He looked down at his jeans and green sweater. Bikini briefs, he lied. Leopard print, thong style. Bull, you're still in the same jeans and green sweater you were wearing when we said goodbye at the airport. You haven't even kicked off your shoes. He looked down at his thick leather hiking boots. The woman was amazing. But I'm in a thong in spirit. Now that I'll buy, she agreed. Are you in a red satin bustier in spirit? He asked. God, Mulder, you are incorrigible. And you're an angel, Dana Scully, he thought. She was playing along with him to help him keep his mind off the fact that he was in his father's house, the same house where he'd cradled his father's dead body after his murder, the same house where he discovered the first of many lies his father had lived. Where are you staying, Scully? Holiday Inn Express on Savannah Highway. She gave him the room number. I'm going to try to get an early start in the morning. I called the Chandlers as soon as I got in and arranged to meet them here at the motel around 9 a.m. They've agreed to show me where Sarah was found when she was a child, see if maybe we can round up some information about who found her, how she was processed by social workers, you know, typical legwork. I'm going to be doing something similar. A knock at the front door startled him. Someone's at the door. Mulder? 
Scully's voice was wary. Are you expecting someone? Didn't order pizza, if that's what you mean. Mulder crossed to the front door. The porch light wasn't on, and the glass in the door was opaque, obscuring his view of whoever stood on the other side. He could barely make out a dark shape, small, scully-sized, he thought. Still, he checked to make sure his sig was in the holster still clipped at his hip before he opened the door. A short, fair-skinned woman around his own age stood on the porch, her eyes wide with surprise. Oh, my God. Fox William Mulder, what the hell are you doing here? Mulder? Scully's voice was tight in his ear. Just the welcome wagon, Scully, he murmured into the receiver. I'll have to get back to you. He hung up the phone and fumbled it into the pocket of his jeans. He took a small step back. Eve? Fox, sweetie. Didn't think I'd ever see you show your face around this godforsaken place again. Eve Wentworth shook her head in disbelief, looking him up and down. Still can't dress with a damn, and would you look at that hair? He grinned and caught her arm, pulling her inside. Nobody but you ever complained. Nobody complained to your face, you mean? She laughed, her hazel gray eyes sparkling. God, it's great to see you, Mulder. You too, Wentworth. He waved her toward the couch. But what the hell are you doing here? She sat down on the sofa. I live next door. He arched his eyebrow. You mean you leave the island, make it big as a writer, make enough money to live anywhere in the world, and you come back to West Tis? What can I say? She shrugged, a bemused smile on her face. Age had been kind to her. She'd been a gawky teenager when he'd known her, not really pretty, but witty as hell, and one of the smartest people he knew. Now in her mid-thirties, she was striking, elegant-looking in a quirky way. Her reddish-gold hair had been wavy when they were kids. She wore it straight and shoulder-length, kind of like Scully's, he thought. She was about Scully's height, about her size and weight. If he squinted and turned his head just right, "'What are you doing?' He blinked, realizing that he had indeed been squinting. "'Sorry, been a long day.' What brings you to the vineyard? A little detective work. Oh, her eyebrows rose in interest. Official FBI business. He'd forgotten how it was to be from a small town where everybody knew everything there was to know about everyone. Of course, that should make his job here that much easier. Kind of official. I'm actually trying to track down my father's movements during three months a few years ago. Maybe I can help, Eve suggested. I've been back here since 1992. Living next door? Yeah, I kept in touch with your dad, too. Made sure he was doing okay. Her voice trailed off, and she looked away from him. Made sure he hadn't drunk till he'd passed out, you mean? She met his gaze, her expression sad. It was getting pretty bad toward the end. I was gone a lot in the spring of 1995, so I wasn't here when he was killed. I got the story, though. She put her hand on his arm. I heard it was a bad time for you. Me and Scully both, he thought. He patted her hand. You wouldn't know about his goings and comings August through November of 1994, would you? Her eyes widened slightly. As a matter of fact, I do. I was working on Rainy Night in Soho at the time, under a wicked deadline, and had to turn down your dad when he asked me if I could keep an eye on the house for him. Mulder's stomach tightened. So he was gone at that time? 
Yeah, he got my friend Laurie to wash the place for him. He was gone almost till Thanksgiving. Mulder clenched his hands in his lap, his head suddenly aching. Damn it. What's the matter? He shook his head, knowing he could never explain the situation to this woman. How could he say, I just found out my father helped perpetuate heinous tortures and tests on the most important person in my life? You want me to go? Eve asked. He shook his head, realizing that he didn't. He didn't want to be alone right now, and with Scully so far away. Well, you got any decent coffee in this place? Eve didn't wait for an answer. She rose and headed for the kitchen. He heard her rummaging around, then heard her utter a soft, satisfied noise. He pushed up from the sofa and went into the kitchen, watching her wash out the coffee maker and put on a pot to brew. I didn't bother with the decaf, she murmured. I'm a lifelong insomniac, and I know you are too. He smiled. It's really good to see you again, Eve. I'd forgotten how much fun you were. Yeah. You forgot about that the second you hit Oxford and hooked up with that Chippy. What was her name? He chuckled. Chippy? Phoebe would love to hear herself called that. Hell, it was probably one of her favorite little sex games, knowing her. Penelope or something? Eve rested her elbows on the counter and leaned back, grinning at him. Phoebe? Yeah, the bitch. Mulder chuckled. You didn't exactly pine away the years for me either, Eve. She shrugged. A girl's gotta do what a girl's gotta do. So I assume you eventually came to your senses about Phoebe. She looked at his hand. No wedding ring. No wife. Married to the job, I guess. What about this partner of yours I've heard about? Debbie or something? He smiled slightly. Dana Scully. Eve's sandy blonde eyebrows rose. So that's how things are. I beg your pardon? You and your partner, you've got something going, right? He cocked his head. We're friends. She nodded slowly. Right. Good friends. Very good friends. She chuckled softly. Can't fool me, Fox Mulder. Remember, I'm the girl with amazing powers of discernment. He laughed at the old joke. She always had been the first to notice a budding romance, sometimes even before the participants did. She was one of the most observant people he knew, and she had a memory that rivaled his own. His smile faded, which is why she'd remembered that his father had spent August through November of 1994 away from the vineyard. Holiday Inn Express, Charleston, South Carolina, February 17, 1998, 8.30 a.m. Dana Scully finished applying her lipstick with one hand while hitting the speed dial on her cellular phone with the other. After four rings, she was about to hang up when she heard a click. Hello? The sound of a woman's voice startled her into temporary silence. Her throat seemed to close. Hello? The voice, low, cultured, with just a hint of a New England accent, repeated. Must be the welcome wagon, Scully thought blackly. I'm looking for Fox Mulder. He's in the shower. Hey, is this Scully? Scully pulled the phone away from her ear and stared at it as if it had come alive. In the shower. Mulder was in the shower and the woman was answering. Wait, they talked about me? Hello? 
She put the phone back to her ear. Yes, this is Dana Scully, and you are? Eve Wentworth, an old friend of Fox's from way back, she chuckled softly. Scully frowned at the phone. Will you tell him I called? Sure. Thanks. Wait, aren't you going to ask me? Scully arched her eyebrows. Excuse me? Well, if I were talking to the first girl my partner ever kissed, I know I'd have some questions. Scully dropped onto the bed, a little thrown by the turn of the conversation. What kind of questions? Well, surely you've wondered if he knows how to put that gorgeous, pouty lower lip to full use. Eve! Mulder's voice rose in the background. There was a soft scuffling sound, Mulder's slow laughter mingling with the woman's throaty chuckle. Then Mulder's voice was strong in Scully's ear. Whatever she told you, I deny it. And here I was worrying about your spending the night alone in your dad's house. She kept her voice light and teasing, although her stomach was beginning to ache. Eve was kind enough to keep the ghosts at bay. She's an old friend. We went all the way through school together until my parents divorced, and then we saw each other summers and holidays. Old girlfriend? Yeah, one of the less painful ones. Wry humor tinged his voice. She lives next door to Dad's house here in West Tis. Isn't that nice? Scully closed her eyes, immediately ashamed of the catty bite of her voice. Damn it, she was not going through this again. Jealousy was an ugly emotion, and she'd succumbed to it because of Mulder too damned many times. I'm glad you didn't have to be alone, she added, much more pleased with the even sympathetic tone of the latter statement. Mulder was silent for a second. Probably too stunned to reply, she thought with a self-deprecating grin. So, how are you? Getting ready to meet Sarah Chandler's parents? Mulder asked finally. Yes, they'll be here around nine o'clock to pick me up. What about you? What's on your agenda? How do you propose to find out where your father was four years ago? He didn't answer. Mulder? Been there, done that. His voice was tight. How? Eve told me. Eve? She was living here in 1994. She said that Dad asked her to keep an eye on the house, that he was gone from August to almost Thanksgiving. Scully frowned. That was mighty convenient, she thought. Eve Wentworth just happens to show up on Mulder's doorstep and just happens to know the whereabouts of his father for a three-month period four years ago? Are you sure you can trust her, Mulder? Of course. He sounded offended. Scully closed her eyes. Great. Now he will think I'm a jealous shrew. But she plunged ahead anyway. Don't you think it's a little strange that your old friend shows up with exactly the piece of information you were looking for? Coincidence. Hell of a coincidence, I'd say. Mulder's voice lowered. I'll check it out, okay? She sighed. Okay, so when are you going back to Washington? I'm going to see if I can get a flight out tonight. How about you? Same, if I'm lucky. It'll depend on what the Chandlers can tell me. Scully, be careful, okay? The concern in his voice caught her by surprise. I'll be fine. I just worry when I'm not with you. I'm packing a sig, Mulder. I think I can handle myself. I know. His voice softened even more. But it just doesn't feel right when we're not even in the same city. Sweet talker, she teased 
covering the slight hitch in her voice. Damn it, the big dumb jerk was going to make her cry. I miss you too. I miss you more, he crooned, just as a knock sounded on her hotel room door. She chuckled aloud. There's someone knocking at my door, Mulder, probably the Chandlers. I'll call you later, okay? And you watch out for yourself, too. If Eve offers you an apple, run. Like the wind, he promised. See ya. She hung up the phone and blinked rapidly, surprised by how much she really did miss him. A knock sounded on her door again. She put her cell phone in her pocket and crossed to answer it. A middle-aged couple stood in the doorway, earnest faces a little tense with apprehension. They seemed somewhat relieved when they took in Scully's neat professional appearance. Agent Scully? the man asked. Yes, Scully extended her hand. You must be Mr. and Mrs. Chandler. West Tisbury, Martha's Vineyard, 9.05 a.m. Mulder shut off his phone and tucked it in his pocket. He turned to find Eve Wentworth staring at him. What? Is that how you always talk to your partner? Not always. She sounded jealous on the phone, I confess. I might not have helped matters. Scully had sounded a bit miffed, he had to admit. Then again, she was territorial by nature. She hadn't cared much for Crycheck either, and there had been nothing sexual about that relationship. It had been enough that Crycheck was usurping her place as his partner. He wasn't quite as sure he could dismiss her reactions to Dr. Berenbaum or Detective White as easily. So, Eve interrupted his thoughts, you were telling me about the visit you and your mom made to Chilmark on Friday. Had it been just Friday? So much had happened in the interim, it seemed like years ago. Mom couldn't handle it. She couldn't stand being in that house, in that room. Understandable. It was horrible, the room. The room is like a crypt. Nothing has been touched for years. It's frozen in time. He shook his head. I used to have this fantasy about bringing Samantha home to that house. He sighed. But it's never going to happen. I know that now. I never thought I'd see the day you gave up on her, Fox. I never did. Eve's eyes were bright with tears she fought to keep from shedding. Like Scully, he thought. I can't live my life trying to change the past, Eve. I'd like to have a future, and that's not going to happen if my whole life revolves around finding someone who probably died 25 years ago. What good is putting my life on hold to find a bundle of bones at the bottom of an unmarked grave? The image his words brought to mind ripped his heart, and he looked away, his eyes burning. No good at all, I suppose. Her voice was soft, comforting. I'm just wondering what changed your mind after all this time. The image of Scully bleeding to death on the floor of a convenience store filled his mind. In that moment, he smelled the sharp tang of blood, the fear in his own sweat. He heard the sirens in the babble of onlookers. Almost a month ago, Scully was shot and nearly killed, and I realized that I had been given not only a second chance, but a third as well. He could tell by the small frown on Eve's face that she didn't understand. I've almost lost her twice. The first time, I took her for granted. This time, I won't. So you are in love with her? I don't know. She smiled. Men are always the last to know. 
I don't know if it's a good idea, Eve. Scully's the best thing in my life. Hell, she is my life, Scully and my work, and they're inextricably intertwined. Then how could it not be a good idea? What if I ruin everything by trying to take things between us to a new level? Do you really have a choice? She countered. He stared back at her, considering the question. Was it even possible to step back now? Was it within his power? He honestly didn't know. Borden Street, Charleston, South Carolina, February 18, 1998, 9.37 a.m. Though Charleston, South Carolina boasted a large naval reservation, it was one of the few places Dana Scully and her family had never lived during her father's career. Driving through the heart of old Charleston, directed by Sarah Chandler's parents, Ray and Linda, Scully found the city utterly charming, from the palms and palmetto trees lining the streets to the ubiquitous two- and three-story Victorian houses that stood as stately reminders of the city's rich culture and history. Borden Street, however, had little in common with the Charleston tourists got to see. It lay in the heart of a run-down section of northeast Charleston. Warehouses lined the narrow road, peeling paint and broken windows marring their facades. Litter spotted the gutters and sidewalks like leprous patches. Scully got a creepy feeling just driving through, a weird sense of deja vu. There, Ray Chandler pointed. Scully followed his gesture. A narrow alley split the street between two abandoned warehouses. Scully pulled the rental car up to the curb and parked. She was found right down there. Chandler led Scully and his wife into the alley on foot. The asphalt was damp and uneven, slick in patches. Scully had to be very careful of her footing. Right there, Linda Chandler said, pointing at a doorway near the end of the alley. Scully moved slightly ahead of them, curiosity overcoming wariness. She looked up at the door. It sagged a bit, paint peeling in scabrous chunks. A faint gray logo was barely readable on the warped wood, a large P with the words Phipps Manufacturing in peeling type below. A sudden image darted through Scully's mind, a large gray P with a dusty pink triangular slash through it. She blinked, surprised. What the hell was that? Is something wrong? Linda Chandler asked. Scully put her hand to her head, willing away the sudden dizziness that spun her world. No, nothing. The image pushed its way back into her mind, a fat gray pea, a bold pink slash. Words, too small, too small to read on the vial. Her stomach clenched, on the vial. The vial Dr. Ishimaru had held in one gloved hand. The vial he'd used to fill the syringe he jabbed into her hip. Oh, God, she remembered it, for real this time, not as a hypnosis-induced confabulation, but an honest-to-God memory. Heedless of the Chandlers, she took a couple of steps away and pulled her notebook from her jacket pocket. Hastily, she sketched the P and the slash as accurately as the swift flash of memory allowed. Is something wrong, Agent Scully? Ray Chandler asked. Scully shook her head. No. Everything's fine. Maybe better than fine. Maybe they finally had a real lead. 
Gay Head, Martha's Vineyard, February 18, 1998, 11.59 a.m. Mulder couldn't remember how long it had been since he'd been to this part of the island. Gay Head was vividly colored clay cliffs, stony beaches, and ancient memories. Called Aquina by the Wampanoag Indians who owned much of the land in the southwest part of the island, Gay Head wasn't for the faint of heart. Boulders, brambles, and treacherous footing were only a few of the obstacles he and Eve Wentworth had faced in their foolhardy plunge into the distant past. I can't believe you talked me into this, Eve panted, stopping near the edge of the high water line. I haven't been out here since that night after graduation. Her voice trailed off and she darted a glance at him. He looked down at his shoes, noting that they were crusted with sand from their descent down the 60-foot incline to the beach. Yeah, me either. Ancient history, she murmured. He looked out across the shimmer of silvery green water, wondering whether his life would have been better if he'd stayed in the States and attended Princeton the way his mother had wanted him to. Oxford had been his father's idea. Mulder had concurred simply to get the hell away from his bitter, angry parents and their escalating animosity. He hadn't really been tempted to stay. His relationship with Eve had been over before that last fateful blow-up on the beach the night of graduation. Even then, he'd had nothing to give another person, nothing to offer. How much does Scully know about Samantha? Everything. Much more than even Eve knew. He hadn't told Eve about his recovered memories of the night his sister had disappeared. She might have heard about it through the vineyard grapevine, of course. He hadn't exactly been discreet with his theories over the past few years. But he hadn't sat by her bed last night and spilled his guts the way he had with Scully a short two days after he met her. You've been together six years? He nodded, a smile on his lips. Eve spoke as if he and Scully were married. March 6 will be our sixth anniversary as partners. Eve chuckled. She must be a hell of a woman to put up with you that long. I don't know why she does. Ah, probably just thinks you are pretty to look at, Fox. Decorativeness can go a long way, you know. He made a face at her. You know, Evie, you've been pretty quiet about your own state of affairs. Is there a significant other for you, or are you a slave to your art? I'm a slave to my art, her lips curved, and I have a significant other. Mulder sat on a large boulder and patted the expanse of rock beside him. Do tell. Not much to tell. His name is David. He's an English professor at Harvard, dabbles in the art, is madly in love with me and wants me to marry him. Mulder arched his eyebrows. And your answer would be? Eve cocked her head, a wry expression on her face. My answer would be yes, except I don't know if I'm marriage material. You know, I like being alone. I like not having to answer to another person. I like not having to worry about whether my insomnia is keeping someone else awake. Do you love him? Her eyes met Mulder's, naked with emotion. God, yes, but is that enough? Mulder didn't have an answer. I don't want to wake up one day realizing that David's love for me has turned into contempt. I saw that happen with my parents, Fox. I saw them go from love to indifference to acrimony, and I won't do that to myself, not for all the world. It doesn't have to be that way, Mulder murmured. The words from his own mouth surprised him, 
He wasn't used to arguing the idea of love, abiding love. In fact, until this moment, he had never really thought he believed in such a thing. Eve's sandy eyebrows rose with skepticism. And you would know about this subject because? Because I know a really wonderful woman who spent 40 years loving and being loved by the same man right up until the day he died. To this day, she loves him still. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I guess maybe it's given me hope. He couldn't help but smile. God, he sounded like a damned Hallmark card. Eve chewed her lower lip and looked down at her folded hands. She was dressed almost completely in black, just as she had been the night before, apparently a holdover from her moody artiste adolescence. Black leather gloves and boots, a long black v-neck sweater, black leggings. Her tweed wool overcoat, brick red lipstick, and the narrow silver hoops in her earlobes were the only hint of color. The more things change, he thought, the more they stay the same. Why do I get the feeling this has something to do with your scully? She looked up at him. Because I'm talking about her parents, he admitted. I never got to know her dad, but her mom and I became good friends when... His voice suddenly failed him. When she was gone? He nodded. He cleared his throat. Scully knows how to love, Eve. She honest to God knows how to love. She had good teachers. Scares the shit out of you, doesn't it? He nodded again. You want it, but you're afraid of it. He nodded a third time. Eve sighed and looked out across the water, her chameleon eyes absorbing the gray-green color, making it their own. What are we going to do with each other, Fox? She chuckled and cut her eyes at him. We could just run away together, you and me. Two chicken shits, too afraid of love to ever be happy. We could spend the rest of our lives making each other as miserable as we think we deserve to be. What do you say? He looked at her, really looked at her, saw the fear hiding behind the joke. Slowly, he shook his head. No, I think you're going home right now. Call your David and tell him, yes, you want to marry him. Her lip trembled. He could see the frantic hope surging through her at the thought. He couldn't help but smile, especially when she said, I am between novels, and the break before spring term for David is only a few weeks away. Maybe we could elope, she chuckled. Maybe I can live my lifelong dream of being married by an Elvis impersonator in Vegas. He laughed. Sounds like a plan. And what's your plan? He looked down at his feet, half buried in gritty sand. I'm going to go home to Scully. And, Eve prodded, and I'm going to see if friends really make the best lovers. Eve's face lit up with a smile. Would you look at us, so decisive? He chuckled. Well, at least for now. We'll see how we do when you get back to West Tis and I get back to D.C. No, you've inspired me, Fox. I can do this. And so can I, he thought. Warmth spread through him despite the bitter cold winds swirling in from the sea. I can do this. South Carolina Department of Human Resources, Charleston office, 1.35 p.m. Dina Cross looked over Scully's credentials thoroughly. I should be able to pull the physical record in a few minutes, Agent Scully. Can you wait here for a moment? The petite, dark-haired caseworker smiled at Mr. and Mrs. Chandler as she went through a connecting door. 
Scully glanced at the Chandlers, noting their complete ease. I assume you've been here before, more than once? We've been foster parents for the state almost 30 years. Ray smiled fondly at his wife. We've taken care of 21 children over the years. Is Sarah the only child you've ever adopted? Ray nodded. We tried adopting a couple of others, but nothing came of it. Sarah was a special case. Scully reached into her briefcase and pulled out the photo she'd gotten from the New Haven Police Department. I understand this isn't a very accurate photo of Sarah. It was the latest one we had. Ray's eyes darkened. Linda and I haven't seen her in over a year. Scully arched her eyebrows. I didn't know. When Sarah started looking for her real family, Ray's voice faltered and he looked down at his work-worn hands. The Chandlers had been hurt, Scully guessed, insulted, worried. We fought her, I admit it. Linda and I couldn't see how a child could come to be naked and comatose on a South Carolina street if her parents had loved her and cared for her. We were afraid Sarah was setting herself up to be hurt badly, and then she got hooked up with that bunch of crazies up at Harvard trying to convince her she'd been abducted by aliens for God's sake. He shook his head. Sarah's not a stupid girl. She's the brightest child I ever knew in my whole life, but she so desperately wants to know where she came from. I'm afraid she'd consider almost any possibility. Sounds a lot like Mulder, Scully thought, considering extreme possibilities to find his lost family. What about younger pictures? Scully was curious about Sarah Chandler, the little girl with no past. She didn't know how much had been done to find her real family 22 years ago, but there were so many databanks these days to help locate and identify missing children. Maybe if she got one of Sarah's childhood pictures and turned the job over to Pendrell and his staff. We have albums full, believe me, Linda Chandler said with a faint smile. I have one of my favorites in my wallet. It was her sophomore photo from UNC Chapel Hill where she did her undergraduate work. Linda reached into her purse, pulled out her wallet, and passed it to her husband, who was sitting nearer Scully. Ray opened his wife's wallet to the photo sleeves, flipped to the first photo, and handed the wallet to Scully. Scully looked at the photo of a girl of 20, smiling into the camera. She was beautiful, though not in any conventional way. Her face was all angles and planes, her nose prominent, but in a way that didn't detract from her beauty. She had the kind of arresting attractiveness that Mulder had. Piece by piece, the features didn't seem to fit together. But put them together, she almost chuckled. Sarah Chandler even had a pouty lower lip like Mulder's. She was happy then. That's before she started having episodes, Ray said. Episodes? She called them flashbacks, Linda said, like memories. Scully nodded. I've discussed this with Sarah myself over email. She didn't have any concrete, specific memories of her missing time, did she? No, just flashes of things, objects, sounds, nothing we could point to and say, ah, there's a clue. Ray shook his head. She got so frustrated trying to remember on her own. While she was at the University of Oregon working on her master's degree, she heard about a psychology study at Harvard that dealt in hypnotic regression therapy. She quit school in the middle of the semester, lost all her credits, and flew to Boston to meet some psychologists there. 
A Dr. Chamberlain, I think her name was. Linda nodded. Dr. Chamberlain convinced Sarah that her memory loss might be due to an alien abduction experience. Scully pressed her lips together in annoyance. Great, she thought. Another Harvard psychologist adding to the paranoia. Just what the world needs. You obviously don't share our daughter's opinion on the subject. I think that there are far more plausible reasons why your daughter ended up in a coma on Borden Street, Mrs. Chandler. And that's what I think we should focus on. Scully looked up as Dina Cross re-entered the room carrying a manila folder. This is what we have, Agent Scully. The photographs of Sarah Chandler, then known as Jane Doe Number 4, taken right after she was taken to the county hospital. A record of what steps were taken to find her natural parents and the procedures undertaken by the county to place her into foster care with the Chandlers. The final disposition, which in this case was adoption by the custodial foster parents. Dina gave Scully the folder and returned to her desk. She came out of her coma two days after she was found, but she didn't have any memory of her earlier life, Ray murmured as Scully opened the folder. She was weak and dehydrated. How long was she in the hospital? Scully glanced over the official forms, searching for familiar names or words. Nothing. Two weeks, Linda answered. She was placed in our home the day she was released. Scully glanced over the medical record and closed noting the dehydration mentioned. She stopped at the results of a blood chemistry test. The white blood cell count was extremely high, with an intended decrease in the leukocyte population. She flipped the page. Yep, a release of glucocorticoids, symptoms of prolonged weightlessness. Did you find something, Agent Scully? Linda asked. Just more grist for Mulder's mill, she thought. She shook her head slightly and flipped to the photograph clipped to the back of the folder and froze. Her heart lurched, began to race. It wasn't possible. It wasn't. Agent Scully? Ray Chandler's voice made her nerves jangle. She looked up, startled. Is something wrong, Agent Scully? She turned the folder so Chandler could see the 8x10 photo attached to the file. This is Sarah? Her voice sounded strangled to her own ears. Yes, taken right after she awoke from her coma. She was 12 or so, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. The doctors were never sure. We just made her birthday May 14th, the day she was found, and we assumed from her size that she was somewhere around 12 at the time. More like 11, Scully thought. 11 and a half. You look like you've seen a ghost, Ray said. I have, Scully thought, staring at the photograph in front of her. I've seen the ghost of Samantha Mulder. Scully stared at the photograph clipped to the back of Sarah Chandler's file, certain that she had to be mistaken. Coincidence, that was all. Similar features, similar hair, similar hazel green eyes that looked just like her breath hitched, caught in her throat. Oh, God. Agent Scully, are you all right? Ray Chandler put his hand on her arm, making her jump. I'm... She swallowed as her voice failed. I'm sorry, I just... Can I get you some water? Dina Cross stood, her pretty delicate features creased with worry. Scully found her voice. No, I'm all right, I'm just surprised. She lifted her chin and reached for her purse, 
remembering something that might help clarify things for everyone. A couple of years back, she and Mulder had exchanged pictures of their sisters, a symbolic act of common commitment to their goal of seeking the truth, she supposed, an act they didn't talk about or analyze because that wasn't how they did things. She carried the photo of Samantha in her wallet, tucked between a photo of her mother and of her sister. She opened her wallet to the photograph and withdrew it from the plastic sleeve. She held the small picture of Samantha Mulder next to the 8 by 10 of young Sarah Chandler. The girls looked virtually identical. Where did you get that picture of Sarah? Ray Chandler bent closer, his brow furrowed. Scully held up the small photo to give him a better look. You're telling me this is your daughter? Yes, but, his eyes widened, she looks so young. The girl in this photograph was eight years old. Scully marveled at the steady tone of her voice because her insides were rattling. She was abducted from her home in Chilmark, Massachusetts on November 27, 1973. Her name is Samantha Mulder. Oh, dear Jesus. Ray Chandler took the photograph from Scully's hand and held it closer to his face, his green eyes focusing on the small image of Samantha Mulder perched on a jungle gym, grinning at the camera. Linda, he thrust the photograph toward his wife. Linda Chandler took the picture, her eyes widened. Scully drew a shuddery sigh. Is that Sarah? Mrs. Chandler looked up at Scully, tears pooling on her lower lids. Yes, I believe it is. Scully looked down at the folder on her lap, at the painfully thin, sad-eyed 11-year-old girl staring back at her from the old photo. She didn't know what to feel. She didn't know if she wanted to feel anything, because in a few short hours she was going to have to fly back to Washington and tell Mulder what she'd found here. She had to be pulled together and strong for when she told Mulder, because she had a feeling he was going to fly apart. You're telling us that you know who Sarah really is? Ray asked. You have her picture? Is she a relative? Scully shook her head. I work with her brother. He's my partner. He spent the last 25 years looking for his sister. For the last 10 years or so, it's been his driving quest in life. His obsession, don't you mean Scully? His madness? Isn't that what you've thought all these years, that he was tilting at windmills? Stop running after your sister, Mulder. He's really got you going, Mulder. Mulder, are you sure it's her? You're identifying with her as a victim, like your sister. Sometimes I don't understand what drives you, Mulder. She closed her eyes, overwhelmed by one utterly unexpected emotion. Guilt. Logan Airport, Boston, Massachusetts, 2.44 p.m. Mulder hitched the strap of his carry-on bag over his shoulder and turned to smile at Eve Wentworth. Okay, no backing out, remember? She nodded, a faint smile curving her lips. You either. In fact, call her right now before I leave. See when her plane is coming in. Surprise her with a gourmet dinner at your place. Mulder chuckled. I can manage soup, Eve, and my place isn't exactly a swinging bachelor pad. If she loves you, it won't matter if it's saltines and a sofa bed. He gave her a playful cuff on the arm. What a romantic. You're stalling, Fox. Call her now before they announce your flight. If I've got to do this, so have you. No backing out, Buster. 
He sighed and pulled his cellular phone from his pocket. Scully answered on the third ring, her voice tense. Hi, it's me, he murmured into the phone, his palms suddenly clammy, his pulse thudded wildly in his throat. Mulder, I can't talk right now. Yup, definitely tense, he thought. Something wrong? No, not exactly. She lowered her voice. I'm just in the middle of something. I was just going to tell you I'm at Logan, about to catch a flight to D.C. Any idea when you'll be back home? My flight leaves at five, she answered tersely. Want me to pick you up at the airport? No, she answered quickly, too quickly. Scully, are you sure there's nothing wrong? I may have some news. Bad news? I can't explain it right now, Mulder. I'll meet you at your place as soon as I get back to town. I'll explain everything then. Scully? Click. She had hung up. He closed the phone and stuck it back into his pocket. Something's wrong. Something serious? Eve asked. He shook his head, more in confusion than in denial. I don't know. Do you think I upset her this morning on the phone? I did mess with her. No. Scully's not that fragile. Whatever was going on with Scully was bigger than an episode of territorialism. She'd been trying to hide it, but he could tell by the sound of her voice that something had shaken her to her core. What had she discovered in South Carolina? Bad news about Sarah Chandler or something about her own abduction? A disembodied voice announced his flight to D.C., he pushed aside his worries and turned to Eve, who was looking up at him with tear-bright eyes. Why is it that I'm always watching your fine ass walking away, Fox? Bad karma? He chuckled and opened his arms for a swift hug. Some folks might say that fortune is smiling on you. Eve pressed her nose against his sternum, her arms tied around his waist. Don't forget to share those books with your scully, Fox. The couple that reads together stays together. And don't forget, you promised to send me your Vegas honeymoon photos. He gently extricated himself from her grasp. Gotta go, Evie. Now, go make your David a very happy man. And you go show your Scully that the lip is functional as well as pretty. Eve gave him a little shove toward the boarding gate. He chuckled all the way onto the plane. But once he had settled into his seat, his high spirits drifted away and he once again remembered the tension in Scully's voice. I may have some news, she'd said, but she hadn't said it was good. Fox Mulder's apartment, Washington, D.C., 8.05 p.m. When Scully's flight from Charleston arrived in D.C., rain was falling in dense, cold sheets. She was able to catch a cab from National Airport with little damage done. But when the cab let her out at the curb in front of Moulter's apartment building, not even her determined sprint could spare her from a cold drenching. She stopped for a moment on the stoop beneath the front awning and shook icy water from her hair before entering. Her briefcase was safely tucked under her arm beneath her overcoat, protected from the rain. Her overnight bag fared a little worse. She dropped the rain-spattered bag on the floor of the elevator that took her to the fourth floor and Mulder's apartment. What was she going to say? Mulder, I've found out where your sister has spent the last 21 years. Problem is, she's gone again. She paused in front of his door, letting her breathing calm and her heart rate slow. But before she could compose herself, 
The door opened, and Mulder stood before her, his hazel eyes dark with concern. Forgot your umbrella? He drew her inside quickly, tugging her overnight bag from her shoulder. She pulled her briefcase from under her wet coat and shrugged the damp garment off, putting it in Mulder's outstretched hand. Who knew it would rain? She tried to keep her voice light. She wondered if she was succeeding. The worried expression on Mulder's face indicated that she was not. We need to get you dried off and warmed up. Why don't you find some dry clothes and change? There's a pair of clean sweats in my closet. You can roll up the cuffs. She knew she was only prolonging the agony, but she did as he suggested, changing from her damp suit into a warm, dry, heather-gray sweatsuit she found hanging in the closet just off the bathroom. While she towel-dried her soaked hair, she silently rehearsed what she was going to say. Mulder, I discovered the most amazing thing. Sarah Chandler isn't just a missing person, she's... Scully? Mulder's voice, practically in her ear, made her jump. She looked up at him, her eyes wide. He put a hand on her shoulder, his touch burned through the fleece-lined sweatsuit. Sorry, didn't mean to startle you. I didn't hear you. She tried to look away from him, but couldn't. Where he stood in the doorway of the bathroom, his face was cast in half-shadow, emphasizing the angles and planes of his unique face. He was so beautiful, she thought, so damned beautiful, sometimes it hurt to look at him, especially when he smiled. But he didn't smile enough, probably hadn't smiled enough in 25 years. The news she had to tell him was double-edged. On one hand, she was about to validate the last 10 years of his life. His sister had been alive. It hadn't been an exercise in futility or madness. Yet on the other hand, Scully couldn't produce Samantha Mulder. She couldn't place the woman's hand in the hand of her brother and say, Look, Mulder, here she is. I found her for you. Because she didn't know where the hell Samantha was or if she was even alive anymore. You said you may have some news, Mulder said. His hand remained on her shoulder, his thumb stroking lightly over her collarbone beneath the sweatsuit. I already have Pendrell working on something. She gently moved away from his touch, ducking beneath his arm into the hallway. Leading him back into the living room, she told him about her flash of memory in the alley in North Charleston. It was a thick, bold sans-serif P with a triangular pink slash across the top half of the letter. I remembered seeing it on a vial, some drug Ishimaro used on me. Mulder's face darkened slightly. You remember that? She nodded, sitting on the sofa. She made room for him, patting the leather cushion beside her. Sit down, Mulder. There's more. He eyed her warily as she bent and picked up the briefcase she'd set down next to the couch. She'd gotten Dina Cross to give her a copy of Sarah Chandler's records, as well as a photocopy of the photograph clipped to the back of the file. The Chandlers had been even more generous, providing her with a photo album of Sarah's childhood pictures. Scully had looked through all the photos during her flight back to D.C., Whatever doubts she'd had about Sarah's true identity were very nearly gone. There was no way two girls could look that much alike, especially considering that Samantha Mulder had disappeared when she was eight years old and Sarah Chandler had mysteriously appeared three and a half years later with no memory of her previous life. 
But there was one final test, one final judge. Mulder, I went to the Charleston DHR with Sarah Chandler's parents to look into Sarah's past. I wanted to know everything there was to know about her case, any clues as to her previous life, anything that might help us understand why Carter Christopher and his consortium would be interested enough to kidnap her. The social worker in charge of the records was kind enough to make me a copy of her file. She handed him the folder. She told him how Sarah had been found naked and comatose on Borden Street. Her blood chemistry test indicates symptoms of prolonged weightlessness, she admitted. Mulder glanced at her. Really? She swallowed with difficulty. Look at the photograph in the back. Mulder's eyes narrowed slightly at the choked sound of her voice. Pressing his lips together, he bent his head and flipped to the photocopied picture in the back of the file. Scully watched his face carefully, waiting. At first, there was no reaction, not a blink, nothing. Then his Adam's apple bobbed a couple of times. The muscle in his jaw twitched. His body went rigid. He went utterly still. Suddenly, his breath exploded from his lungs and his shoulders heaved. He jerked his head around, meeting Scully's gaze. His lips moved wordlessly. She saw the brightness of tears in his eyes, and all doubt was gone. Tears filled her own eyes. It's her, isn't it, Mulder? It's Samantha. He stared at her for a long moment. Then his voice emerged from somewhere deep inside him. Yes. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.